Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 7, Watch Out for the Watchers, Demonology in the Books of Enoch and Jubilees. This week, we enter into a new phase of the podcast in which one of us will go into the history of a particular moment or text crucial for the development of ideas about demons and devils. During these episodes, we will proceed in roughly chronological order to reconstruct the intellectual worlds that gave birth to the devil as we know him today. We're going to start with the demonologies of the books of Enoch and Jubilees, written during the Second Temple period of Judaism from roughly 400 to 100 BCE, or before Common Era. In order to explain what these texts show us about the development of demonology, we need to understand their relationship to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. The book of Enoch is named after the great-grandfather of Noah. This gives us a clue that we're going to be dealing with some of the characters and events that take place in the book of Genesis. The book of Enoch is itself actually an elaboration on the primordial history of Genesis, building on some verses that seem pretty innocuous at first. It's after the death of Adam in Genesis 6 when people begin to multiply and the daughters of these early humans are observed by the sons of God, or Bene Elohim in the original Hebrew, who then take the daughters of humanity for wives. The sons of God were understood to be members of the heavenly court, what we might think of today as angels. Their dalliances with human women annoys God, who remarks to himself that his spirit will not abide in mortals forever, and that he will limit their lifespans to 120 years as a result of this offense. We might ask, though, where were the rules against this posted? How were the humans or the angels supposed to know that they shouldn't get it on together? What exactly constitutes the sin? The offspring of these illicit unions are named in Genesis as the Nephilim, sometimes rendered as giants, and the Bible refers to them as heroes of old, warriors of renown. After this development, God decides that maybe creating these human beings was more trouble than it was worth, and wipes them out with the flood. With the exception of Noah and his family, and samples of all the animals, and somehow it is this episode of the floating Swiss Family Robinson Zoo that was the Ark, which is more familiar to the imagery of children's books and coloring's books than the interspecies angel's human sex. But go figure. The action I just described occurs in a very compact amount of words in Genesis. And if biblical interpretation and theological storytelling loves anything, it's expanding on things. So that's where we get into with Enoch and the story of the Watchers. The Watchers only get one mention in the Hebrew Bible canon, and that's in Daniel 4, where they are described as denizens of heaven who pronounce judgment on mortals in accordance with the wishes of God. This role seems similar, if less directly troublesome, than the Satans we, dis- we discussed in episode 2. One of the striking things about the story of the Watchers in the Book of Enoch is how the action results from a conscious rebellion against God. Shemihaza is the commander of 200 Watcher angels, and he, like his troops, finds the sight of these human daughters simply irresistible. 
But Shemihaza worries that he will take the blame for the transgression of consorting with these human women if he does not get something straight with his troops. Again, like in the, the Genesis text, it's not clear how he or the reader knows that this sex that he and his troops are contemplating is a crime against God. He gets the rest of his 200 watcher troops to swear an oath with him on Mount Hermon to bear the consequences together. From that point on, the watchers begin their relationships with human women and impregnate each of their wives. And the text makes it clear that this is one wife per watcher, which it's, it's interesting that since this is like such a terrible thing that happens that they, you know, maintain monogamy through the entire transgression. The watchers teach these women charms and enchant one angel named Azael teaches the humans how to make weapons jewelry decorations makeup all the things the author of this work seems to think are responsible for jealousy lust strife and violence one way for understanding the flood as a punishment against humanity originates here with Azael's story humans fall into sin through the acquisition of forbidden knowledge one of the watcher angels named Azael teaches the men how to make weapons, jewelry, decorations, makeup, all the things the author of this work seems to think are responsible for jealousy, lust, and strife. But then things get really fun. When the children of the angels and the humans are born, they are giants, as in Genesis. But instead of being heroes of old, these giants are just bastards in the literal and figurative sense of the word. They devour the resources of humanity, they start devouring humans, all the rest of the animals, and eventually cannibalize themselves to the point of vampirism. As we will see later in Jubilees, drinking blood is just not cool with God. All of this chaos is too much for the archangels, who are starting to notice that their subordinates have let things go to shit down on Earth. One archangel, Sariel, informs Noah of the coming flood, while Gabriel, another, kills the giants, and Michael and Raphael imprison Azael, Shemihaza, and the rest of the lost boys under the earth to wait until the final judgment, when they will be led away to eternal fires. Both Enoch and Jubilees have their final judgment apocalypse programs running in the background. Another interesting feature of the Book of Enoch and the Watcher's story in particular is that the titular character Enoch is not only a passive audience having cosmic conflicts revealed to him by archangels. He also gets to play a role, namely announcing to the fallen watchers how badly they have screwed up. Imagine having the temerity to tell off a bunch of super-powered aliens who happen to work for God. But the watchers are so aghast when Enoch tells them how badly they've screwed up that they beg for him to intervene for them with God. Enoch complies with their requests, but then receives another vision communicating God's refusal to treat with the fallen angels. It's pretty dark from there. It's in this speech where Enoch informs the watchers that their children will be cut down before their very eyes. Not only that, but the ghosts of these giant children will rise up as evil spirits to afflict humanity. This is actually crucial for God's post facto justification for why this punishment is so severe yet fitting. The Watchers are spiritual beings who defile themselves with human flesh. I guess they were supposed to have known better? The point is that the ghosts of the giants are a mix of spirit and flesh, but as spirits born on earth, the ground is their proper dwelling. 
They make it through the flood because they have a job to do, making human beings miserable for their sins. God reveals to Enoch that because these spirits are bastard children of humanity, they'll come back to haunt them. But eventually, like their fallen angel dads, the evil spirits will be killed at the end of history by the archangel Michael. There's always the question of responsibility in these stories. What God reveals to Enoch is that these angels were in heaven, yet were not privy to the most important mysteries, suggesting that they were low-ranking. This gets at a problem of rank, crucial to the text of Jubilees. But for the moment, we can just mark out that these lower-ranking angels seem to bear the responsibility for their actions. That's the purpose of the oath at the beginning of the story. But we can still ask, how was it that they were so completely compelled by the charms of human bodies? Why weren't they better prepared to deal with these sorts of challenges? Before getting into Jubilees, I wanted to make a remark about the relationship of these texts to the biblical canon, that is, to the books that are included in different versions of the Bible. What is understood to be the Hebrew Bible by most Jewish communities today comes from the Masoretic Scroll, which is comprised of sacred texts written in Hebrew and Aramaic. There were other texts that ancient Jews wrote and read in, like ancient Greek and Ge'ez, or classically Theopic. Books such as Enoch and Jubilees appear in these languages, and so they weren't included in the Masoretic Scroll. Nor were they considered canonical by Christian authorities, except for in Ethiopia. It wasn't until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the mid-20th century that Hebrew and Aramaic versions of Enoch and Jubilees were discovered. Enoch and Jubilees are considered canonical by Beta Israel or Ethiopian Jews, and with some qualifications by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. For the latter, Enoch and Jubilees appear as authorities for legitimizing circumcision and Saturday Sabbath observance. So it's just really interesting to see how these texts, while sort of obscurely narrating the cosmic wars of angels and demons, end up having practical significance for Christians today. Like Enoch, the Book of Jubilees was written during the Second Temple period of Judaism, around the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, whom we discussed in episode 2. The title Jubilees refers to a unit of time, which is 49 years, into which all of history is divided. This book purports to be the recording of the revelation given to Moses by an angel on Mount Sinai in the 50th Jubilee. Like Enoch, Jubilees is an example of rewritten scripture, narrating the events of Genesis and Exodus, and expanding on certain details of the story that are left unsaid in the older biblical texts. The contents of this retelling reveals a little about the audience of this work. Most likely Jews who were part of the priestly and Levitical circles associated with the sacrifice and worship that took place in the Temple of Jerusalem. We can see this in the way the retellings emphasize important themes for late anti-Judaism such as purity, ritual, calendar, biblical interpretation, and genealogy. The characters of Jubilees care about the sort of things that Second Temple Jews of the priestly rank cared about. Jubilee seems aware of the Watchers tradition from Enoch and adapts it freely. I want to focus my discussion on two major differences. First, the different demonic characters, different plots, and different impact on the retelling of the biblical stories. And then, the relative importance of the Watchers in both stories for bringing about evil and sin. The Watchers in Enoch see humans from on high and then conspire to rebel. This is sort of a sudden, rash decision propelled by lust. This is not the case in Jubilees. The Watchers descend, ironically, 
to Earth to teach humanity morality, to serve as moral exemplars. They also do so after several hundred years. There's nothing rash about their descent. Their lusting after human women thus does not take place in heaven, but on Earth. And this is significant. The problem of evil has less to do here with insidious angelic fantasies of power, as will be the case in later Christian accounts, and more to do with mixing things that don't belong together. We see this idea of corruption in the ensuing action of Jubilees. The watchers take wives, and then the wheels fall off the bus of earthly creation practically immediately. Then I'm going to quote a little bit here. Lawlessness increased on the earth, and all flesh corrupted its ways, alike men and cattle and beasts and birds and everything that walks on the earth. All of them corrupted their ways and their orders, and they began to devour each other. And lawlessness increased on the earth, and every imagination of the thoughts of all men were thus evil continually. One of the points of continuity between the Watcher's story as it appears in Enoch and as it appears in Jubilees is that the Watchers take wives, suggesting that they are male since they yield giant offspring. I don't want to speculate too much about the sex and gender of angels and its different properties, um, but in Jubilees there is this point that the higher order angels are sexed because they are circumcised. And the lower order angels in Jubilees don't have a sex, and they're more associated with controlling natural forces, natural phenomena. This suggests to me, at least, that the angels who fall in Jubilees are of a higher order. Clearly, we need some more gender theory about angels in our lives, or at least I need to find out some more. But it's very striking how male sexing is so important for the action of both these stories. Everything is spoiled after this procreation. Something deep in the flesh of not just humans or angels, but cattle, birds, bees, it's all ruined. We have cannibalism, lawlessness, and worst of the worst, a naughty imagination. It's very telling how these things belong in the same set of problems for the author or authors of Jubilees. The immorality of the situation falls under the category of pollution, contagion. It's not like we didn't see this coming, either. In a strange narrative choice, Jubilees tells the story of Enoch earlier on than the Watcher's Rebellion, how he learns writing, the seasons, the temporal structures of the Jubilees themselves, and also how he scolds the Watchers for their horniness and folly. He's, he's scorning them in Jubilees before they even do anything. It's sort of a flashback, I guess, with the later account. After this, to protect him from the coming destruction, Enoch is conveyed by the good angels to the Garden of Eden to write down his condemnation of humanity and burn sweet-smelling incense to God as a perpetual sacrifice. Very similar to Genesis 6, God sends the flood to punish humanity, though crucially he does not repent of having made them as he does in Genesis. Jubilee cleans up the textual mess that suggests God hadn't planned for this all along. He deals with the giants differently, quote, sending his sword among them so that they can kill each other, and again, most cruelly, before the eyes of their angelic fathers. As in Enoch, their spirits are incarcerated beneath the earth. The Watchers also seem to get locked up themselves. After Noah and his family take the most wild ride of their lives on the ark, Noah explains to his sons what the hell just happened. Kids, gather around. 
I know it's hard to see after we were floating the roaring seas for 150 days, but there's a lesson in all of this. If you eat blood, if you go vampiric like those crazy giants did, God simply will not tolerate it. God and Noah enter into a covenant that protects Noah's descendants from death by flood. But Noah has noticed that some evil spirits, the ghosts of the giants, have been sparking division and covetousness among his offspring. Noah points out to God that the Almighty must have dominion over these miserable pests. But just then, the evil boss of the ghost giants comes drifting onto center stage to say his piece. This is the first major personality representing the forces of evil in Jubilees, and the author gives him a big part in the action. His name is Mastema, and the text takes pains to point out that he is a Satan. Which is to say, an adversarial accusatory angel. There's no mention of the conspiratorial watcher such as Shemihaza, we just have Mastema the Satan. And boy, does he have a proposition for God. Of course you have dominion, my dear boy, of course! But who is going to do your dirty work punishing these miserable humans? They're already messing things up, and you just spared this family. Great is their wickedness. Think about it. Who made this trouble in the first place? Tradition holds that the devil is a lawyer. I'm not saying that Mastema is the devil, exactly, but we get an early glimpse of some demonic prowess in persuasion here. God allows for a tenth of the imprisoned evil spirit, ghost giant, angel bastards to be allowed to torment and mislead humanity. What seems to go without saying is that humanity deserves all of this. Soon after, the prince, Mastema, sends ravens to pluck up the planted seeds in human fields. The rest of the evil spirits spreads disease and sickness. As a countermeasure, the loyal angels appear to the humans and teach them medical knowledge so that they can survive the plaguing demons. An interesting motif of angelic teaching gets repeated here. Before, the Watchers were supposed to be teaching morality and Sunday school and stuff to the humans, and at different points they teach them knowledge of the stars and heavenly bodies, along with their astrological significance. This shows how there is some level of relationality between angels and humans in Jubilees. The humans can be taught, and they can also, uh, affect the angels in interesting ways. Which takes me to the second point about the Watchers tradition in Jubilees. As opposed to Enoch, it seems that the brunt of the blame for evil or sin, or however you want to name it, rests with human beings. Not that they act alone. Mastema and his demonic goons are described as operating in the background whenever there is a blood-eating, idolatrous, fornicating kind of party going along. Yet humanity bears responsibility in everything, from the seduction of the Watchers to the construction of the Tower of Babel. The Watchers and their sons are not so much the cause of all evil, according to scholars like Lawrence Struckenbrook, but a revealing example of its consequences. Their function, in other words, is paradigmatic. They really just embody everything that can go wrong. Humanity is a partner in the plunge into sin here, while before an Enoch, sin and impurity arrives through the lust and plotting of disobedient angels. I mentioned that Mastema plays a big part in Jubilees. And what I mean is big if you read Jubilees with some awareness of how certain episodes get narrated in Genesis and Exodus, the first two books of the Torah. For example, in Genesis 22, God tests his servant Abraham by commanding the patriarch to sacrifice his son Isaac. This is rather incomprehensible because Isaac is born through divine influence. 
Abraham and Sarah are extremely elderly when they conceive Isaac. And so it's, you know, we can see this miraculous influence of God. Why would God take this gift back so cruelly and remake the recipient of the gift the instrument for its destruction? It's a question that interpreters have broken their heads on for millennia. Go ask Soren Kierkegaard. But Jubilee solves the problem of the evil God, or evil Abraham, through a clever solution. It was Mastema who came up with the whole scheme to discredit Abraham. It doesn't work. Abraham is willing to go through with the bloody business, but God at the last minute sends an angel to protect the prone Isaac, and Mastema takes the L. One more example. In Exodus, before the children of Israel leave Egypt, ten plagues roll through to show the Pharaoh that the God of Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham is not here to be trifled with. The last of these plagues is the killing of the firstborn. Everything firstborn, be it human or animal, is felled by the avenging angel unless the lintel of the door is smeared in sheep or goat's blood. And this is, of course, what is commemorated in the holiday of Passover. But you can see where I'm going with this. In Jubilee's retelling of the story, it's Mastema who plays the part of the avenging angel, killing all the unprotected firstborn in Egypt. This guy is everywhere. So what does this all add up to? Mastema's insertion into the stories of Genesis and Exodus appears as an extension of the Satan role, which we saw in the book of Job. We see how Mastema plays this part in the binding of Isaac's story. He provokes God to test Abraham's allegiance. What's strange is how the text registers God's utmost confidence in Abraham when faced with this challenge. And yet he goes ahead and commands Abraham to do what Mastema suggested. We might ask, what's the point of this if God knew all along? Of course, there's a wealth of possibilities when it comes to the pedagogical dimensions of this test. Test of faith, you know, a, a sort of paradigmatic example for the readers of the text, etc. But one of the key details is that Mastema is humiliated, a, re a recurring motif of humiliation for the prince of evil, giant, ghost, angel, human people. It foreshadows the failure and destruction of this Satan, lowercase s, at the end of history. Despite this antagonism between God and Mastema, Mastema still, you know, he works for God. We see that in the example of the plague of the firstborn, when it is the evil spirit who punishes Pharaoh and his people on behalf of God. If we start with Enoch, what we see is that the battles between angels and demons constitutes the moral universe. The major moral stumble begins with the angels or the watchers lust and their plot to disobey their orders and the oath they swear to hang together come hell or high water, as it were. Jubilees follows a similar plot, but responsibility for the flourishing of evil is more balanced out between angels, humans, and evil spirits. In both cases, violation of boundaries between angelic spirit and human flesh leads to the corruption of all creation. The demons of Jubilees fulfills a divine function, punishing humans who get on the wrong side of God's providence, God's economy and governance of history and the created world. This inserts demons into the economy of divine providence. They are more like tools than a sinister will opposing the designs of God. Mestima only gets to do what he does with God's permission. He and his demons provoke humans to test their mettle, then punish them when they fail. As Philip Allman puts it, God has outsourced punishment. In the grand scope of sacred history, it's a temporary measure. 
but this temporary measure provides a clue as to how difficult it has become to assert divine benevolence while holding on to the idea that God is omnipotent. Punishment is outsourced in Jubilees. Widespread sin and disorder is the fault of insubordinate watchers in Enoch. Both stories make evil the cause of misfortune. You suffer because you deserve it. The one associates this evil with the battle between angels and demons, while the other regulates the demons, making them into a systematic function of God's plan. In the former, humans are more passive in the midst of a supernatural battlefield. In the latter, humans have a more central moral responsibility. But both plots take pains to create space between God and the origins of sin. And what we see, especially in Jubilees, is the firm assertion that everything is under control. Okay, so just kind of going for some reactions to this story of the Watchers uh, in, in Genesis and in Enoch and in Jubilees. We were talking about it, and it seems like you were saying, Travis, that the stakes are a little different depending on when the angelic fall happens. That's right. My first reaction to the story is that when you place the angelic fall at this moment, which is to say as a commentary on Genesis 6 about the Nephilim as it comes right before the Noah I was going to say Ark of the Noah narrative. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. um, when you place it there, it seems ancillary to the larger story of the emergence of evil and humanity and God. It seems like we're explaining a rather minor moment. Whereas when you push the narrative of the angelic fall, I'm not here talking about Adam and Eve, I'm talking about the angels, back to pre-Genesis, essentially, as a prehistory to the creation of human beings. For example, this is something that Augustine will do when he tells his account of the angelic fall versus the, the fall of humanity. I think that raises the stakes quite significantly, because once you have a narrative that precedes the human story, then it's part of this larger cosmic setup of the world. This is the way things are. This is how the devil, in that story, by that point, the ultimate enemy of God, who has a personality, who has a, a fixed identity. And here it feels like, perhaps, if you're thinking in a linear development of the devil, this seems like a much weaker character. We don't even, he's not really called Satan here. He's a Satan. He's taking that adversarial role and even we have mastema right we don't have jubilees. the devil yeah. so as i'm just trying to draw back from this story where does this particular part of the narrative take us with regard to our larger story about the devil i guess i would say this seems like a version of the devil who is not clearly developed yet whose story is not clearly related to the human story and the theological story of sin and evil and humanity. Although there's some interesting moments where we need to distinguish between what the angels are doing in their teaching capacity with regard to the human beings. Are they showing, are they tempting them into evil? Are they the origin of evil? 
or are they kind of present and expressions and helpers in what is essentially a human act of sinning against God? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. I love how you're you're really dogging the author of Enoch and Jubilees for not thinking big picture enough. Like that's really, it's really, it's really on brand for you to be, you know, criticizing these, uh, you know, these these sort of extra canonical biblical writers. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> I would say, I mean, I think it's interesting because you're saying the temporality matters, and there are demonologies that put the fall of the angelic hordes, the bad ones anyway in pre-pre-prehistory, pre-humanity, creation history. Um, And this one slides into Genesis 6, uh, and it seems like you're saying ancillary. I think my sense is that you're picking up on it at the end because depending on the source or even the moment in these different adaptations of the Watcher folklore tradition, it seems that making humanity co-responsible is pretty important. There's a lot of ways in which human beings seem to share in the guilt, especially when the story emphasizes this kind of like seduction of the angels. That's more in Jubilees than than Enoch, because in Jubilees, the angels are on earth and in Enoch, they're in heaven. But there's this sense that, and this kind of goes back to the ambiguities of the biblical narrative where um, it's not entirely clear why God sends the flood there's a way of seeing it as, oh, it's a result of this illicit union between the watchers and the human beings. But there's also a way which sort of seems like sort of disconnected from that action. It's like, it, it's it's hard to make cause and effect out of it. And so if you see it as like, okay, like this is a way in which we can make sense of how human beings, you know, keep fucking up so badly. You know, it takes God off the hook a little bit from, you know, like, we hear this question of, like, well, why did God make human beings this way if they can mess up so badly? And it's like, well, you know, when other celestial beings get in the mix, then, yeah, like, uh, all bets are off, maybe. And so that's my sense. And and it kind of pushes us ahead into the Dead Sea Scroll materials a little bit where you have this, this contrast between a cosmological, eschatological dualism between enemy nations, enemy spirits, and good spirits, and, and, and your own nation versus other documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls where it's very psychological and internal dualism between being guided by the good spirit or the evil spirit. And I think that the Watcher's story gets adapted, at least in the Dead Sea Scrolls, more for that kind of internal dualism between being tempted by the spirit of evil and being enlightened by the spirit of good. Uh, so that's my that's my response. But I, you know, I get your I get your point, and the question also is like, well, where does this take us with regard to the devil? To me, the idea of temptation as like this sort of the good angel on one side and the bad angel on the other side is is such a prevalent cliche and icon of satanic temptation, that internalization of of satanic temptation. But then there's also the sense, especially in Enoch, of rebellion, which I think is very familiar to a lot of the ways in which the Lucifer story gets told. Yeah, I think there's a lot of weight in much later and Christian, not Jewish traditions on needing to locate the origin of human sin and by extension also angelic sin away from God and within those individuals. And the role of the devil as tempter is this carefully constructed way to absolve God of causing any evil to occur, of creating evil on the one hand, 
and pushing responsibility ultimately on created beings, whether angelic or human. So I think I'm reading concerns of much later traditions onto the material. And that's where my interest when I'm reading through and saying, okay, these angelic beings who come down, they have sex. Are they sharing in this, what we might interpret the text to be saying in the sin between humans and angels in their having sex together? And, or is something else going on? How do we account in these stories for where evil resides? Is God completely absolved on the one hand? Are humans and, and angels completely responsible? Are angels functioning as, as a tempter in the role that the devil will later take, for example, in New Testament texts where Jesus is tempted by the, by the devil, right? Which, of course, is also complicated because he's God, too. So. Right, yeah, and I think sometimes the way that the images of the demonic fall from Enoch and Jubilees get interpreted is like, it's paradigmatic of temptation and making the wrong decision. So the angels are paradigms or examples of messing up. And then there's another sense in which they are, or at least they're, they're sort of ghostly evil spirit children are the ones responsible for that. And so you kind of get it in both directions. And then I like how you mentioned that the left behind 10% of these angel ghost creatures are perhaps left to remain as a form of punishment for the sin that's happened before. Did, did I understand you correctly? Yeah. Uh, there's a sense in which they are in Jubilees. The 10th percent that's left behind is there to cause physical harm to human beings and it, it does emphasize that seeking physical destruction of human beings. At the same time, it does seem like human beings themselves bear a lot of the responsibility for the evil things that happen. But there is this sort of general sense that the the, the demons, like Mastema's people, are, are at hand when, when sin goes down or when blood drinking goes down or idolatry goes down or whatever. So it it's not totally specific about causing blame but it does have a slightly different emphasis than than Enoch does. I think one of the things that's like really striking about these texts is this theme of sexuality and if you read like as you and I obviously already have because we did an episode on it, you know read Milton and sex between Adam and Eve is so much a part of the story of temptation in Paradise Lost. This really puts that kind of narrative onto this later episode and it's so much stranger it's like interspecies seduction and 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 this this mixing and there seems to be almost weirdly racial overtones to the whole thing and I, i don't know i was just wondering like what you made of all of this as not only a story of one of a series of stumblings and mess ups before god and though as i point out in before like it's never entirely clear what the rule was posted that you couldn't do this. Um, but anyway, so there's like this sense of, it's a story of of this, this, this failure on humanity's part. But it's also the story of the, the origin of these demons too, that they are born of this sexual union. And it just seems so, so lurid and, and, and strange to see this as a really major account of how evil and, and the demonic comes to be. 
And it's probably also important to note that the coming together of the divine and the human for Christian interpreters will have special resonance with the incarnation itself and the source of what will be for Christian theology, salvation, redemption, all that. Right, 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 right. Here we have quite something different, which was more consistent with, let's say, Roman reactions to early Christian theology and how gross they thought it all was and how inappropriate, strangely, though, because, of course, there are divine interactions with human beings in Roman religion as well. I think having one almighty God who would deign to do this, though, was certainly offensive to lots of different groups, not just the Romans. But this idea of the coming together of the angels with human beings as a violation of an unwritten purity code seems to me to be consistent with a lot of, let's say, the spirit of Mosaic law, which was concerned with purity, with the keeping separate of things that are sacred and profane. And that that was very much part of what worship of Yahweh meant, was the keeping of the divinely given law. But here, as you point out, what does it mean if there's no divinely given law that has anything to do with this? We're all supposed to somehow already know that this was forbidden, I would argue, both to the angels and to the humans. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is what I understand to be the case with Jubilees, is that part of the rhetoric of Jubilees is to show that the patriarchs of Genesis kept and had the same concerns about purity laws as would develop in later Jewish practice. And so maybe I'm being a little disingenuous when I sort of am quizzical about like, how is anyone supposed to know about this sort of great folly and illegality of this union? In Enoch, there's this scene where God's like, well, you knew that you were spiritual and you knew, you know, it sort of ex post facto justifies this prohibition that was not really clear as the action was unfolding. Though the angels do sort of act rather, you know, like conspirers when they are, when they're planning this whole thing in, in Enoch. Speaking of the teaching function of the angels, what do you see about the drawing together of what I would think of as pretty disparate fields of knowledge, namely sexuality mm-hmm. as knowledge on the one hand that you've already tied to Adam and Eve and later interpretations of Adam and Eve of the eating of the fruit as being related somehow to sexual knowledge on the one hand and teaching how to do makeup weapons. So there are a lot of different strands going on here developments in human capabilities that remind me a little bit of the Promethean myth on the one hand of a divinely granted knowledge to humanity meant to inspire them, but also of this idea of knowledge as related to sin explicitly, tied to jealousy, tied to these other clearly morally problematic modalities that are named in the text. Right. And so my understanding is that, especially with Enoch, is that there's almost like two traditions. And the one tradition has Shemi Haz's rebellion as like the big, the big deal. And then the other tradition has the Azael teaching as the big deal. And, and the Shemi Haza rebellion is Shemi Haza who bears the weight. In the Azael situation, humanity starts to take on more of the, the onus and there's even a tradition internal to that that has the invention of makeup as being the occasion for the seduction of the watchers. So there's kind of it's like a circularity, you know, built into that. So yeah, it, it, the knowledge is is important, and um, 
uh, Miriam Brand, who has this, this good podcast on Second Temple Judaism and, and Sin and Evil, she says that usually knowledge is considered a good thing in a lot of the sources from this time period. And it's interesting how in Enoch, it's, it's pointed to as being forbidden or, prof- or, or this sort of occult knowledge that is a root of evil. And it actually makes this text kind of unique for the time to, make, to associate knowledge with, with evil. I want to also visit specifically this knowledge of makeup for a couple of reasons. One is because it's a feminine knowledge and it's considered evil and it's related to sexuality and seduction, as you've already pointed to. And it's also knowledge that our apparently male gendered and male sexed angels already have, which is very confusing and strange. I guess we'll just attribute it, chalk it up to being divine and you just know things, or maybe, you know, <laughs> Azael has some proclivities, yeah. to, you know, for makeup, like, yeah. you know, more power to him. I don't know, no blame coming from me, but I'm curious about the demonization of female branches of knowledge that are related to sexuality, of course, that are consistent with other kind of patriarchal texts and, and attitudes on the one hand, also the mystery of the of the origin of this kind of knowledge on the other yeah 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 no that's it's it seems like it really comes out of nowhere um it's like you should be stabbing each other you you could have prettier eyes what doesn't belong in this series of, uh, of tables right um yeah it's such an interesting story and i mean to just go, to the, go back to this point about how it really makes a lot out of a very small set of fragmentary verses in Genesis. And it's like, wait a second. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think I wasn't aware of this whole tradition until I read this, until I, when I was like first getting into this with like Philip Allman's book and stuff, like I had no idea about the, the watchers and the, the giants and stuff. Did you, I mean, I had no idea. Yeah. Okay, the only reason I knew is because I was in a biblical Hebrew class and somehow the Nephilim came up and we were like, what is happening here? And our teacher said, well, actually, there are all these really interesting stories about it. And I didn't follow up then and I really should have, but yeah. I'm, I'm glad now I've gotten to learn a little bit more about this because it presents a different picture, I think. Again, to step back a little, it presents a different picture of human divine interactions of angels as intermediaries of angels as progenitors of monsters the mixture of human and and angelic as damned or as related to evil acts on the one hand and this idea of god leaving behind something meant to torment humanity is also i think really important and this is not a version that i was familiar with from my you know, broader training in Christian theology, where this, the account of evil is quite different. And the account of punishment and the brokenness of the world just doesn't line up with these stories. This is a very different account. This idea of that something angelic could produce something monstrous seems like a very striking part of the whole thing, that there seems to be like a very thin line dividing the demonic and the angelic or the monstrous and the divine. That has long legs as, as a theme. That sort of sounds like Mary Shelley, Frankenstein kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, But the end of Milton as the, that transformation, the monstrous transformation of 
Lucifer and his followers into yeah. serpents, right? Yeah. Some sort of monster. Like serpents right? that eat fruit that turn into dust that they have to keep eating. Yeah. What a scene. But, and that reminds me, and I remember when we read that with Milton, and that seems so sadistic. Like, I almost was mad at Milton for being such a bastard. And, like, to the demons, right? But, like, I'm like, man, like, this is, like, so cool. This is almost cooler than what Satan did. Um, and it this this reflects also the Watcher's tradition. And I think in both in Jubilees and Enoch, where God's like, and hey, you're going to watch your freaking giant fuck-up kids die before your very eyes, you angel fuck-ups. You're like, man, like, really? That's how you're going to do it. Um, do you think that's tied to ideas about justice that are inherent in this text? Justice is really important to consider as we think about evil and the history of the devil, right? Yeah. This is in response to, this is maybe automatically set into motion because of the actions that have taken place. And yes, you have to sort of accept, if that's the theory, then you have to accept that both angels and humans knew that this was bad, I think. But if you do, then doesn't that help defend God's justice? Again, maybe not a God we all want to believe in, <laughs> leave that open but yeah i mean again to take it back to miriam brand's podcast and the lectures yeah she was like in enoch the the watchers want children so it's justice that they see their children but they can't have their children and it wasn't entirely clear to me that wanting progeny was the motivation for their wanting to get it on with some attractive ladies when i first read it i thought it was just lust so it was interesting to sort of see different ways you could take that as like oh like lust really translates into this this desire for progeny which was not intuitive to me when i was reading the stories but i would probably defer but so that's one way of taking that i suppose but how is it justice it's also just seems to like play into like this this thing where the watchers are kind of trapped they don't really die until the end of history they're like paralyzed. It's like a nightmare. They are paralyzed and they have to they have to watch all this horrible stuff happen to people they we presume cared about. It's pretty dark. <laughs> that I hadn't really considered it from that perspective before. Wow. Now it does sound like some very sadistic stuff. I have yeah. to agree with you. Yeah, then that's the that's the connection back to Milton where it seems like divine justice gets into the sadistic pretty quickly. And are we kind of charting out a territory where the difference between justice and something more sadistic looks like no possibility for redemption after a certain point. There's a bridge you cross and then you be, you get turned into a monster or your children do and you have to watch. For sure. Because Enoch goes to the angels in the Watcher's story in Enoch and is like, you guys are messed up. And they're like, oh, maybe you're right. Can you go talk to God for us? And he's like, yeah. And he does it and God's like, no, they're fucked. They're like, I'm, I'm done. Like, uh, they're going to pay. And you're like, even Enoch's like, yeah, I guess I better go try, you know? like. Although, you know, maybe that makes sort of a kind of sense in a story that can be read as an interpolation of mm -hmm. what's about to happen in the flood with Noah. Mm -hmm. All of creation is, with very few exceptions, is about to be completely destroyed forever. And sure, God will promise after that story not to do that again with water anyway. God will not destroy the world again. But I think it it makes a certain amount of sense that we see 
very extreme forms of retaliation against evil in the world, against human or angelic sin. There is like a one-liner, isn't there, in Genesis 6, where God says something about why this destruction is happening. I don't want to leave that totally out of our of our narrative here. It's not a mystery. Well, it's like human being human beings have like bad things in their minds and hearts all the time or something and and he repents of having he repents of having created them and he says I'm going to withdraw my spirit from them and restrict their lifespan to 120 years and all that that's what Oh, it is very strange this text. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. It seems like we just have three different narratives that are kind of layered on each other, like some textual difficulties here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Lord saw how great the great wickedness yeah. of the human race had become on the earth, and then regrets that, and I will wipe them off the, ma- the face of the earth. But that, that follows right on the end of the Nephilim and the very compact story of their generation and the giants and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean... Speaking of the Nephilim, I mean, they've been in the news lately. I don't know if you heard, but LeBron James is apparently in league with the Nephilim. I, I didn't know if you knew that, but his whole his whole chalk throwing apparently yeah is a way of summoning the Nephilim demons to help him. You know, I think I saw that on a podcast recently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, so we really recording this in a timely moment when necromancers and and demonically possessing nba greatest players of all time are really just waging war against the cosmic order it's clear that they walk the earth still so uh, we shouldn't be surprised you know knowing this history does this mean that the guy thinks that the nba players are the nephilim like i don't even get the nephilim are all dead like i don't even understand like the the ghosts the nephilim have ghosts but the nephilim are dead i don't i don't get it like i think it's the nephilim if you read it as the nephilim ghosts i think it works yeah because there's no account of the end of the nephilim ghosts is there they're i mean they they are uh the evil spirits i mean right who are here it's a it's an origin story yeah that part right so i think i think nephilim ghosts chalk i think it all ties together makes complete sense yeah Okay, so what are we talking about next time? Well, next time, we're going to see how a lot of the ideas from Jubilees and Enoch uh, are taken up by a sectarian community of Jews from the late antique period, known as the Essenes in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we're going to see how they work with those ideas and how they develop their own sectarian ideas about demons and their struggle against demons psychologically and historically. Sounds good. Okay, well, thanks for listening. See you next time. See you next time. This pod is produced by Infernal Productions and is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.